Hello and welcome to the Energy Talk podcast presented by Okra Solar. My name is Olubumi Olajide and on this podcast we tell stories about the energy transition in sub-Saharan Africa. Focusing first on the financiers, policymakers, operators and everybody else in between that is working hard to close the energy access gap on the continent. Thank you for joining us for another episode. So quick heads up, this is going to be a long one, but it's going to be well worth it because this episode we're speaking with two representatives from Persistent Energy, a venture builder operating out of Kenya that is focusing on investments in energy companies in sub-Saharan Africa. Persistent Energy has invested in over 20 companies that are operating in this space. And in this episode, we'll talk about everything from their investment thesis, how they look at growth in the clean energy sector in Africa, and we will talk about their exits. Now, before we get into that conversation, I want to give a big shout out to our partners on this podcast. Okra Solar develops mesh grid technology to get energy access to people in off-grid communities. Mesh grids are interconnected solar home systems and a leading form of rural electrification that provides a high power output at a low cost. If you'd like to learn more, visit okrasolar.com. I'll also have the information in the show notes of this episode. Without any further ado, let's get into this episode. The first voice you will hear is Wairimu telling us about how she first got into energy and what her role is at Persistent. Welcome, Tobias and Wairimu, to the Energy Talk podcast. It is truly my pleasure to be hosting both of you and um, having to talk about the amazing work that you were doing with Persistence. So welcome. I think we should start with introduction. So the way we like to do this on the podcast is begin with what was your first introduction to energy and then talk about what role you have now at Persistence. So perhaps Wairimu, you do the honors of starting and then Tobias can follow after. Great question. My first introduction to energy was actually wanting to be an electrical engineer when I was in high school and thinking about the course I want to take. I did not end up being an electrical engineer. I ended up being a lawyer uh, because that's what the government said I should do based on my marks, I think. And then I ended up working in a law firm where we were doing a lot of power projects. So I think that scratched the itch for me. I'm working on various projects like the Lake Chukana Power Project in Kenya, among others. And why energy is because really energy poverty equals poverty. And that is our mantra also in persistent in trying to make energy work for Africa and energy work, climate work for Africa. And that's a passion that I have um, personally, and it gives me a lot of motivation in my work. You can go into your current role at Persistent and kind of like just a quick like milestone on how you got to your current place. All right. So um, at Persistent, I am a partner and also the chief legal and compliance officer. So I take care of matters relating to investor relations, to our work, um, investing, um, including legal and ESG, all through the due diligence process to the investment process to venture building companies in legal compliance and ESG. And how I started in Persistent um, is a great story. I was working in my consultancy. I was introduced to Persistent and I loved what they did. I knew them from the sector 
but seeing the kind of impact that they have, especially working in locally founded companies, working in climate impact startups in Africa, and really ensuring that there is, you know, employment for the youth and climate solutions that actually have not just a climate impact, but a social and economic impact is what drives me. So I've been with Persistent for close to three years now, and the future is boundless for me. Amazing. Tobias, so uh, I think yours is going to be the more overarching story of Persistent. So I'd like you to do the same and walk us through how Persistent, not just you spinning your role, but how Persistent came to be. Yeah. Well, let me start with the same. And I was just reflecting as where we were speaking on my first talk point with energy. So I guess in, in my case, a bit of background I, before I start into the persistent uh, story. So I actually grew up my whole childhood in Central Africa, mainly Central African Republic. So many of you may know, right, it's you know largely off-grid country. And so my childhood was also spent growing up off-grid. And so I guess energy was a very tangible topic from the very beginning, more something had to, or we had to deal with, right? How do you get energy? And from the very early, back in the days, very early, very expensive, small solar panels to, of course, the digital generator set up, et cetera. So kind of the topic of energy was for me very early on connected to the topic of energy access and what does it mean not having energy? What does it, what opportunities does it provide having energy So kind of both perspectives? So that, that's, I think, really something that, you know, Electron also made me very immediately bond with the mission that we have here as persistent uh, among others. So kind of fast forwarding beyond growing up in rural Africa, I did have a study in finance, mainly finance and economics, a numbers person, I would say, like many people as well. So, so like to connect with numbers, but at the same time, still the, the reality behind them. Before even joining Persistent, went back to Africa, Central Africa, spent a few years leading finance and logistics, so very on the ground work. Also started up two of my own companies with local business partners, which started my own entrepreneurial journey and experiences there, you know, saw firsthand the opportunities and, you know, the, the challenges as well of being an entrepreneur in such settings, but really also what it can do for development, for acceleration of many of the things that we care about as well as persistent. Fast forwarding a few years with a few years in a more corporate job back in Europe, I then met the persistent team seven years ago that had just gone past that first initial stage of scale. So they were starting to grow the team beyond the co-founders. And I was lucky enough through a coincidence to get to know them and yeah, very quickly bonded with with the mission, the goal, the approach of Persistent, which was already back then really, you know, similar to what we're doing now, even though, of course, smaller at scale. And yeah, that six years later, I'm still at Persistent, currently the managing partner. And, you know, similar to what Warimu said, also still see plenty of opportunities, really motivated by what we do on a day-to-day -day basis, motivated working with the diverse team that we have across various locations. and you know, enjoyed the breadth of topics, you know, from trying to solve, you know, accounting issues with a startup to, you know, strategizing, you know, what, the, what will it take to really make a dent, you know, in, in climate transition areas, right. As we are raising our fund and, you know, tackling various other topics. So 
I guess that's really also something that defines me and what I enjoy about the work of Persistent, that you have such a breadth of, of topics from very detailed to very high level. So just out of curiosity, was it initially obvious that energy would be Persistent's main focus? I know it's in the name, but is it something that was always there um, from the beginning, from the co-founder stage, is it something that has, a, that has evolved? And then after uh, YRIMU, you could work us through how uh, Persistence is currently structured and how you serve the, um, the African energy ecosystem. So Tobias, you can take the first half, YRIMU can come in after. Yeah, no, good, good point. As you say, it is in the name or Precision Energy Capital, right? Is our full legal name, even though we go, you know, broadly with Persistent, which is also a funny story of, you know, Persistent, how, how that name, I think even looking back and I didn't choose it myself, but it's still just such a fitting name for the quality that we need to, we need to bring to work every day and quality that we're looking in, in the entrepreneurs that we invest in. So think still really a fitting name. It was actually a, a son of one of the co-founders who came up with the idea and said, and, <laughs> and, you know, the story goes something along like, it's not just patience that we need, right? We all talk about patient capital and for sure patience is one, but at the same time, despite the need for patience, I think the, the motivation for persistent was climate, was the impact of climate. And uh, I think we all know and hopefully all agree that there is a real urgency to it. And so that's a bit how then Persistent came about, right? From the thought of, okay, there's patience needed, but at the same time, there's also real urgency to what we do. And every, you know, year, every, every month counts. And that's kind of the story of how, of how Persistent as, as a name came. And then you touch on energy. I think many, many instances are a bit also where in time we start and as I said, the motivation from the start was having an impact on, on climate and the mobile money penetration really started taking off, which enabled the pay as you go aspects, right? Making smaller systems affordable. And at the same time, the, the strongly decreasing prices for solar, which, which had really started at around that time. And so these two macro trends coming together really meant that there was an opportunity for a new sector to be born. You know, it has different names, right? Pay as you go, solar home system space. It has also massively evolved over the last, you know, 10 years. But that was really where, you know, the time that it was born. And the, the founders of Persistent from the start saw their value add to help emerging sectors relevant in the climate space accelerate. And that's also then how the model was, was, was started, the venture building model. We call ourselves Africa's climate venture builder. So out of the motivation to have a climate impact, the off-grid energy space was in a way the natural starting point, given where that sector was at. And there was a true additional role to be played in helping to shape and accelerate such a young sector, such a nascent sector, where not only patience was needed, not only persistence, but also a very hands-on model that enabled to, you know, invest even before some of the fundamental business model questions were, were clear. And that's, that's really the, uh, that's really what started us off and what has brought us, you know, to where we're in now. And I'm sure we'll dive a bit deeper into how we've evolved and grown, you know, from the starts in the off-grid energy space, but probably a good point to hand over to Arimo to what you mentioned as the second part of the question to, you know, how are we even structured to be able to tackle these type of uh, challenges? 
Um, so how we're structured is we're structured as a permanent capital investment vehicle currently, um, but we are going to be launching a fund next year, a $100 million fund. We're going to talk a little bit about that later on. Now, as persistent, our backbone is the team. We are about 25 globally of passionate investment and venture building professionals. So we are, I would say, about close to 80% uh, based in Africa. And that is a very deliberate approach, right? To make sure that we are actually on the ground thinking about solutions and talking to climate impact entrepreneurs who have a foothold in Africa. We're also close to 70% African. Again, it's because having people on the ground is really important to us. Tobias is really more sort of quasi-African than anything else. So we include that in the people that we know and love in Africa. And how we have evolved over time is we actually started out in New York when Tobias was talking about the history of persistence 11 years ago in 2012. And then, you know, we, and we started off as one of the pioneer investors in the off-grid energy sector. And with that, we grew based on the needs of the companies, based on how we were seeing our investment strategy evolving. And that's how we ended up with an office in Zurich, an office in Lagos, an office in Nairobi. And interestingly, the office in Nairobi, because Nairobi is really a hub of traveling across Africa, and Lagos is also a hub for West Africa, the Nairobi office grew, I believe, over two years from having, I think, 40 members to having now 13 team members. And in terms of how our investment um, strategy grew and how our interest grew, you know, we started off in off-grid energy. We evolved our strategy to also include electric mobility, obviously, because we see those climate solutions growing. If you think of, you know, Lagos, and the traffic in Lagos and the fact that there needs to be more electrified urban mobility. Or if you think of the DRC, Kinshasa or Nairobi, and just the amount of ICE bikes there are, or tuk-tuks, uh, what we call bajajis in Tanzania, there is a clear need to develop those solutions. And then we evolved again into in our strategy where we saw, obviously, in Africa, agriculture is a huge component. So we have now agricultural transition as one of our pillars um, of investment where, you know, 70% of Africans, I think, depend on agriculture for their, for their well-being and also for their income. And then evolve that strategy again to, to the circular economy sector where we see that there needs to be huge, you know, waste management solutions and also solutions when it comes to end of life for solar panels, for batteries, etc. And that goes to the second part of this second question, which is how we serve Africa and the opportunities and social problems that we see. Mm -hmm. Because in everything that we do in climate impact, it has social impact, right? Where you help entrepreneurs, you are also um, encouraging entrepreneurship and encouraging job development for the youth. You are also changing livelihoods and, and improving livelihoods. And for me personally, and for Tobias and the rest of the persistent team, gender impact is really important. And there are, to be honest, no climate solution that I can think of that doesn't have a gender impact. Thank you for that. And that's a really good note to end on as well, because this year especially, I've gone a lot to communities that we have deployed 
off-grid energy projects with. And I see that very firsthand, the fact that the more community engagement you do, especially with the women in the community, the, the, the probability of your project being successful just goes up like tenfold or more. You mentioned something, and I just want to kind of like make sure the audience understands how Persistent is presenting itself. So there's the investment side, but there's also the venture building side. So just, just to make sure that the audience fully understands um, what you mean when you say venture building, and especially considering the fact that a lot of the companies I'm imagining much earlier on were in very early stages and very raw because of the way the industry was set up, especially off-grid. How involved did you need to be when you brought in a new company and you said you had to invest in? So what did that kind of support look like then? And how has it evolved now um, to your venture building uh, component? Yeah, indeed. Yeah, maybe just to, to take that very quick step back, right? So as you said, I mean, we are clearly an early stage investor, right? Investing mm-hmm. pre-seed to pre-series A. And now the challenge comes not only investing in sub-Saharan Africa, but also in nascent and emerging uh, sectors as we do. And at the beginning, I would say we've always been a venture builder. Um, what we have done is we've formalized it, we've learned from it, we've, you know, fine-tuned the model. And, you know, in the beginning, what we'd started to do is we, we came across great entrepreneurs, you know, that we, that we felt were really onto something and, and able to build a great company. And we knew we wanted to invest in them and we believed they were able to build, you know, highly scalable businesses. But in some cases, we, we saw that the need to have financial sophistication early on, because often some of these models are capital intensive, meant that, that ideally they would have had to have a CFO in their founding team. And not all of them had, right? Many founders are coming more from the tech side or, or from, from various other sides. And, you know, initially we, we also had to basically say, hey, come back when you have a CFO, right? Or come back when you have XYZ. And we, you know, we quickly realized that if we really wanted to make a dent in uh, energy access, you know, initially, and as we're explained, we've since expanded into various other climate areas, you know, nascent sectors that have similar aspects to it. You know, we realized that if we wanted to accelerate these spaces and not just be an observer, you know, as these sectors evolve and, 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 you know, essentially start developing and learning, we need to be able to plug some of those gaps. Of course, not all of those gaps, right? We can't, we can't fill all gaps, but we started to really develop a deliberate model where we said, you know, certain type of skill sets that we see are, you know, over and over again needed, but lacking. Let's try and build that capacity in-house so that we can deploy that capacity alongside our investment. So instead of telling a company or an entrepreneur, come back to us when you have a CFO identified more come back to us when you have, you know, a proper governance structure, we actually were able now to say we can invest and we can place one of our team members alongside you as interim CFO, you know, in, in various other functions as well. But interim CFO is, is kind of one of the primary ones that we've seen over and over again and have, have held that role as well. And that enabled us to start investing very early on, that enabled us to to follow on invest a lot more strategically. And so that's, that's essentially how this venture building model was born. And we've now since, you know, deployed this model in way over 10 companies, right? We don't, it's not a cookie cutter model. It's not an accelerator model, right? Often it sounds very similar and, you know, you will know that, you know, the venture building term is now a very common one, 
I think also because it's been realized, still everyone has their flavor of venture building. What we really mean is going that one step beyond being a hands-on invest. And I often like to clarify that, right? We, we provide boardroom advice. We provide strategy advice. We do workshops, right? We do all of that. But when we say venture building, we mean placing staff, right? As part of the company to work alongside them, help the entrepreneur focus on what they're best at and, you know, get that business to that scale where they can attract the talent um, that they need. And that's really what we mean with venture building. So if you want to digest it to its simplest form, it's investing, you know, human capital alongside financial capital for valuable equity stakes. And this is, this is really what we have built and developed over the last 10 years and what we're bringing to the next level of scale and impact with our fund that, that we're currently raising that where we will pint it up. Yeah. But yeah, happy, hope that, hope that sets a bit the scene or clarifies a bit with what we actually mean with venture building. Yeah, thank you, Tobias. And I've said this a few times on the podcast, and I think I'll, I'll keep saying it until I get in trouble, which probably very soon. In my day job, I've run across a lot of project developers that are uh, deploying uh, clean energy projects. And in reality, they operate more as financial institutions and investment firms than they do actual developers. And I think it's a consequence of the type of funding that's available and how finances need to be structured for this project engineering around subsidy programs, around grants, and really trying to get creative to how to get the best concessional debt for projects. And that has really forced a certain type of developer to emerge as the, the more preferred operating model, if you will. But something else that I want to bring up every time we have investors on the podcast, because as you said, this is a very interesting space to be in as an investor, because you're not just trying to look at what projects can have the most um, financial returns, you're also looking at impact. So, uh, in uh, persistence investment principles, how do you balance this and how do you um, talk to investors and your portfolio companies and your staff about how you look at really balancing the need to um, invest in projects that um, have the potential to bring in good financial return, but also look uh, more broadly at the overarching mission of persistence at really addressing the, um, the climate challenges we have in a way that um, kind of like it signifies the, the urgency that it requires and also targets the impact to the end user. So I'm really curious to, to see how that's been implemented in your current principles. Sure, I can take that one. It really starts from our assessment of investments, right from screening, because you're right that there is what companies want to achieve, there's what Persistent wants to achieve, and there needs to be that mission alignment, right? So mm -hmm. during screening and during due diligence, we try and make sure that we are looking at pipeline companies that are mission aligned with our impact story and impact and mission aligned with our venture building offering, right? Because mm -hmm. a lot of times companies will come to you, will come to us, you know, needing the venture capital because there is a gap there. But we really need to assess how can we help you and do you think that you need that help, right? So if strategic support that is required is an interim CFO, that is something that we build in considerations on when we are actually screening a company. So a lot of times we take the gaps as opportunities, right? If the company mm -hmm. doesn't have, you know, if the financial model doesn't work as great as we would want it to work, 
then rather than saying, okay, we can't invest, we try and see, can we offer interim CFO venture building? Does the company actually want this or need this? The same thing, Tobias talked about things like tech venture building. When we look at the you know, solution that you're offering at the, you know, the app that you're using, do you need technology venture building? Is there a way we can help you build that better? Are we aligned in how you want that solution to work? Is it, do you have a path to achieving product market fit? If not, rather than not investing, how can we work with you to have a path to achieving product market fit? It's the same consideration we have when it comes to gender alignment, right? A lot of the times when companies come to us, um, it's two co-founders um, or, or a founder, a small team, you know, maybe they're tech guys or tech women. So what we say is, okay, you don't have gender alignment yet, but can you achieve gender alignment with this period of time? Same thing with ESG, um, because a lot of times when companies come to us, they're small companies, they've not really been thinking about some of their compliance requirements, tax returns, the like, also things like governance and structuring boards. So we will help them with that and we'll take that as, opportunity, as an opportunity and we work through a bespoke solution for the for the company in venture building. And to bring in Tobias, uh, for people watching, you might have seen Tobias teleported there for a second. Uh, so Tobias currently persistent has a portfolio about 20, uh, 20 companies uh, strong. And as Wairimu just, uh, just described, um, you look at a very early stage, but I'm curious um, right now, as your, de as your definition of early stage, has that evolved any? And right now, how would you define um, the stage that you would like to come into the company on a more operational level? Yeah, very good question. And indeed, early stage means something else, right? Depending on who you talk to, depending on the context uh, that you're in. And often when, when we say early stage, we realize, you know, uh, that's probably not even in the early stage definition that others say. So... To your question, what we mean as persistent when we say early stage. So I, I gave the kind of more technical definition of pre-seed to pre-series A. Um, let me start with our ambition. So our ambition is to be able to work and build and invest with the best climate entrepreneurs in Africa and emerging, you know, nascent climate sectors. That means that we want to have a certain bandwidth at which we can invest. And that's why we also have a custom investment and custom venture building model. So some of those entrepreneurs, they might have, you know, just an idea. They might have the idea and we, we get to meet them. We, we listen to them and we, we understand what they're trying to tackle and we understand the business opportunity. And, you know, these are entrepreneurs we would, we want to be able to invest and build with. And that's probably what I would call right pre-seed. Um, that can literally be nothing else than an entrepreneur or, you know, group of entrepreneurs with a very good idea. And, and that's, that's where we come in. You have the other, the other side of the spectrum, taking Alltech as a concrete example in DRC, one of our off-grid solar investments have since expanded into multiple areas, but then grown very significantly. But they had already been around for probably four or five years when we invested, but they were, and they were successful at what they were doing, but they were limited to build their vision and to build their scale because they were lacking certain ingredients of which capital was one, of which financial sophistication was one. And 
these are also the type of entrepreneurs we want to be able to work with. So in many ways, they were maybe not as early stage as one would think, right? Or what one may not call them as early stage as others, but term early stage really for us means a company that can still significantly benefit from the additionality that we can bring in as persistent as venture builder. Obviously that has limits, right? We have, we have maximum ticket sizes, you know, with the fund that may increase, that will probably increase by a bit, but you know, so there are some limitations at which we can be additional, both from the capital and from the human capital perspective, but that does span quite the breadth. And our, our main focus is really where can we bring differentiated value that is also recognized and can help bring that company to that next stage. Yes. And speaking of that larger fund, Warimu, let's come back to you and get into the big news here. So recently, Persistent Energy announced the 100 million facility that is the Climate Venture Builder Fund. So uh, first of all, congratulations on this, what I think is an amazing milestone. It's always great when we have organizations like Persistent looking for ways to finance the sector that's in very, very dire need of financing, especially right now. So I'd like you to walk us through what the idea for the fund initially was and what it was like going out and fundraising to get to the stage where it's at and also to get into who are the people who are um, partnering with you to provide the financing for this. All right. Well, the journey for the fund has taken a bit of time from our own inception in 2012 to now as we discussed before, we started off and are still a permanent capital vehicle. We raise funding or have raised funding to date off of our own balance sheet and invest off of our balance sheet. And for and we also consult and offer advisory to a couple of other funds. So overall, we have invested so far $23 million off of our balance sheet, and we have advised in total $265 million in assets under management. And as Tobias was describing what is early stage and what it means, what we realized is that for a lot of companies who are especially locally owned ven uh, venture companies, we are one of the few investors who will invest at early stage or even at pre-series A. And to have greater impact in our work, we needed to raise a larger fund so that we can be able to dedicate even more resources to our venture companies and be able to even have more follow-on investments in successful startups that are really gearing up for scale. So we launched, um, or we are launching the fund uh, next year. We're aiming for a fast close of about 40 million uh, by end of Q2 next year. The fund um, is going to be $100 million. We have an anchor investor, FSD Africa Investments or FSDI. They invest monies from the UK Foreign Commonwealth Development Office or FCDO. And they invested in our last round, last year, CUC, wanting to really catalyze the impact of venture building in Africa. Now, we're going to be doing the same thing which is venture building. The difference is really the fact that we are going to be dedicating more resources, including as initial ticket sizes, and also making more follow-on investments in our successful companies. Because as said, 
even at Series A, if you think of the pool of venture investors in Africa, it's a small pool of investors who maybe will invest at a company whose valuation is, I don't know, 5 million, 10 million. And so we want to dedicate more on that. And in terms of climate areas, we talked about the energy transition, which is where our history started. Um, in renewable energy. And we're going to also invest in the, we talked about the agricultural transition, um, the resource transition, and in technology enablers. That's a flavor um, of the fund. We expect, as said, to have first close by end of Q2 next year and to then have a second close one year after that. And we are really excited about the partnerships that we've developed so far with FSDAI. Um, we are in talks with also other development finance institutions and foundations and strategics, corporates that are looking to make an impact in Africa. We are balancing the impact with commercial returns. Um, so we are offering attractive returns that are both commercial returns and impact returns. And we will have updates coming very okay. soon. There's a lot <laughs> that we cannot talk about right now. But we are, you know, also reaching out to venture companies who are looking for a partner like Persistent who may be listening to this podcast. Ticket sizes of between, you know, 250,000 to 2 million. If you think you fall into that category and if you think you fall into the category of climate impact in those areas that I talked about that also would like to benefit from hands-on venture building in the areas mm -hmm. that Tobias described, please get in touch. Oh, yes. Your inbounds, if they're not already about to go, uh, very crazy. So I'm sure you all are anticipate, uh, uh, anticipating uh, the new year. Um, Tobias, to bring this to you, I mentioned your portfolio companies being about 20 strong. Have you learned anything from specific sectors? Wairimo covered this um, briefly when she spoke. I'm curious if there are any sectors particularly that you're looking at um, with um, a bit more interest going forward into 2024 and beyond, especially with this new fund flows on the horizon. Is there anything particularly that you are uh, looking to drive more towards or historically you've seen particularly large interest in? Yeah, good question. Also a difficult one because there are so many exciting areas. Every time I speak to new entrepreneurs, I just came back from two weeks in Kenya and Uganda and spoke to a lot of different entrepreneurs and there is so much excitement and innovation going on. So it is a challenging question, but let me try and highlight two or three, which, you know, will not be exhaustive, but, you know, one is electric mobility that has really only just started. We still see a massive potential in that sector and we believe that will, you know, continue to grow very, very significantly over the next, you know, decade for sure. So we're excited to help continue to shape that sector by investing in entrepreneurs that shape that sector. So that's one. And that has, again, you know, there will be a disaggregation of value chains in electric mobility, right? Everyone is talking about, is it battery swapping? Is it charging at home, right? So there's a lot of really exciting and interesting developments that can be capitalized on. And the second one in the energy transition space I would mention is diesel generator replacement uh, topic. Again, that has been a topic for years and years, particularly in Nigeria, of course, right? But I think we see that finally the solar inverters, solar generators, whatever you want to call them, are getting to a stage where the product market fit 
is there and where there's very interesting models and great entrepreneurs that find models to bring those solutions to where they're needed. And obviously there's a massive scale there. So these are two areas in the energy transition space. Uh, and then, yes, I am also excited about some quite new and nice areas in agricultural transition, resource transition areas that have a you know very significant climate, but also socioeconomic impact that are maybe a bit further away from energy. You can think of a biochar, for example, which is a very nascent space, has a massive potential. Any investments that can improve the yields of, of smallholder farmers, digitalization along along those lines that have a climate impact. So there's kind of a mix of sectors that have really started to grow to a point where I believe they're pivotal and then kind of some very nascent uh, areas that I believe will will shape the next 10 years. Okay, uh, very well said, Tobias. And uh, Warima, you spoke uh, about the um, other funds that Persistent advises. So perhaps you could speak very briefly on that before we um, get to our, our next topic. One is the Energy Entrepreneurs Growth Fund. So that is with Shell Foundation and FMO and um, currently managed by Triple Jump and uh, has persistent on as an advisor. So is that the mode of the fund that you're looking to advise on? And maybe we could just dive a bit deeper into what this partnership entails. All right. Well, I'll start on a little bit and then hand it to Tobias, who actually co-leads our advisory on the Energy Entrepreneurs Growth Fund. So the EEGF is a $120 million fund and that was seeded by Shell Foundation and FMO. And it looks to really further the uptake of renewable energy solutions in Africa. And we've been advising the EEGF for what, well, since 2019, we've been advising the EEGF. So about four or five years now. And the team has been working in pipeline um, development, in reaching out to companies, speaking with companies, due diligence, um, and also in what we call engine room support, which is a type of venture building. So it's not sort of as in-depth as we provide in persistent, but we also realize that the companies require engine room support. The EGF is focused on growth stage companies. So companies that, you know, already have, you know, product market fit and already have, you know, successful, you know, revenues. And that's really a flavor of what we do. And our partnership in, with the AEGF, with Triple Jump has really been great. They, they actually have an office across the road from ah. us. Um, so, so it's a great partnership. You know, if, if you need something quickly confirmed, you can, you know, run on there if you need to. And also a great partnership with Tobias also being near their offices in Zurich. I can also describe another mandate that we have been advising on, which is mm -hmm. the clean energy and energy inclusion in Africa or CEI Africa. And that is a foundation that has been set up with um, support from KFW and BMZ. It's set up in the Netherlands, although our donors are German. And that, again, encourages the uptake of off-grid solutions, including mini-grid and renewable energy in Africa. So the window that we advise on in CEI Africa is the crowd partnership with crowd lending window. And what we try to do or what we are achieving in doing is in catalyzing um, crowd lending capital into mini grids and other off grid solutions in Africa. And um, I can talk a little bit because it's also public information that we have um, concluded partnerships with 
LenderHand, um, which is a crowd lender based in Europe and also with Trine. And we are in the first stages of achieving deployment of um, CEI Africa funding into, you know, much needed mini grid companies that are really looking at marginalized communities um, energy access. And um, we have also had advisory mandates with, uh, with Power Africa, with the, with the AECF, with GIZ on their Get Invest mandate. And all that, you know, it sounds like a lot, but it really goes to show, you know, what we are doing on the African continent in sub-Saharan Africa in achieving climate impact. And it's really helped us develop our skill set as individuals and a firm to get to a point where we know that in deploying the fund, uh, we're going to be ready um, as a highly regarded venture builder and investment advisor in Africa. Okay. Thank you, Orimu. And uh, Tobias, do you want to get into the uh, Energy Entrepreneurs Growth Fund first? And then we have three more questions to round off, uh, round off the session. Yeah, sounds good. Maybe to build on what you what you shared, Warimu, I think it's it's really important to note that EGF is an exceptional initiative, right? And you've mentioned the ones who, you know, who conceived that idea and and triple jump and persistent really have the privilege to help shape shape that fund. But in the end, EGF is is a unique fund because it has a huge amount of flexibility, right? They can do it can do the all of the instruments, so from equity, straight equity to senior debt and everything in between. It is focused on mezzanine, but really the whole idea of EGF is that it can provide the right type of capital, tailored type of capital needed for growth, for growth stage companies in the decentralized renewable energy space and in sub-Saharan Africa. And so that's why there is this, you know, the whole range of instruments which EGF can deploy. Again, the biggest gap that we see in the market is mezzanine. Mezzanine can obviously mean various things. In the end, it's really a tailored financial investment to the stage of the companies, adapting to the type of capital senior lenders may need, adapting to the type of capital shareholders are willing to take up that, you know, works with, you know, various dilution concerns. So there's really an opportunity and we've been able to already showcase that in a few instances with some of the investment we've done as EEGF, how that ability to tailor mezzanine investments can really help a company get to that next level of growth. And, and Warumu already mentioned the engine room aspects of it. And that's really also quite a, a unique feature that EEGF has. And it's all about adding additional value based on experience, based on the 10 years that Persistent has already worked with these type of companies, um, both early and later stage companies. And, you know, in the due diligence, being able to go a bit behind the scenes or looking, you know, engine room comes from the whole concept, right? Looking uh, be below the hood, so to speak. Um, you know, to give an example, if we see in due diligence that financial statements are periodically coming you know, later than they should by a company, you know, we don't just flag that as a risk, but we, in the due diligence, we understand why is that the case? Is it restraints in the finance team? Is it complex, you know, accounting and consolidation processes? Is it yet 
yet another item. And we even go one step beyond. We don't only identify what kind of the core underlying issue is, if there is an issue, but we also post-investment work with the companies to address some of these pain points. And that's mm. what we call them the engine room support. Yes. Thank you, Tobias. That was a, a pretty handy explanation. But now let's talk about exits. So this is something that we had a brief chat before on, and I sent you a very interesting article around the conversation more broadly about exits. But in 2022, it was a particularly busy year for Persistent around exits. You had two that are notable. First is uh, Daystar Power being acquired by Shell. And the other is uh, PEG Africa being acquired by uh, Bbox. So uh, first, let's talk a bit more broadly about um, exit ideologically. And let's get into um, how um, you mentioned earlier about balancing um, the need for returns with impact. So um, talk about the ideological approach that Precision has towards um, exits and talking about exits. And uh, perhaps you can go into more detail about whichever one of those two um, acquisitions I mentioned. Yeah, on exits, obviously, it's a, it's a critical topic when investing, right? And we all know, and that's a, a consistent theme across any conferences, anyone who might attend, right? The lack of exits or the difficulty of exits. And, you know, and so for us as well, it's a principal topic because we know if we want to scale the model, if we want the ecosystem to develop, we need to exits and we need to see positive exits and we've yeah indeed we've had you know we've had the experience now of four exits out of our portfolio and also learnings out of that and i mean you mentioned one of them daystar i think daystar was also you know full of learnings first of all it's about how you find these type of deals and there indeed our nigeria-based team was the core to even being able to access such an opportunity as a first round investor alongside a local uh, lead investor. And then obviously maintaining the relationship with the company was crucial um, for the whole exit process. And, you know, in that case, obviously it was a strategic acquisition, which again has its own dynamic. The other exits we've had were mainly secondaries, which also require different approaches. But all in all, I think maintaining good relationships with the entrepreneurs are critical. Oh, thank you. And why would you want to maybe pick up from there? Yes, sure. And as Tobias mentioned, we, we've had a good experience with regard to investing in Africa and having exits. We've had four exits so far. Average multiple has been 3.4x um, MYC. And so we, we feel that there can, you can achieve good exits. Of course, investing is a balance, right? There are some where mm -hmm. you achieve exits good exits and there's somewhere you achieve not so great exit. And the trick is in really, again, maintaining good relationships with the founders um, where these opportunities arise, but also over the course of a company's life, then also keeping a close watch on, you know, their performance, financials, sales, and the business strategy and being able to anticipate when issues will arise that could affect you know, valuations, right? So where we can, and we have had situations where we have concluded venture building contracts with companies because we, are, we don't stay there forever. But if there is a situation where we see that we need to go back and actually have sort of growth stage venture building for a short period of time to ensure that companies 
then get back on track. That's something that we've done before. Now, of course, you don't have a crystal ball where you can see that this is going to happen or this is not going to happen. But it's always a question of keeping your eye on the ball, keeping your finger on the pulse as best as you can, but also be creating a trust relationship, right? Because as a venture builder and as an investor and even as a strategic board member, and again, that's one of the things that we do, we have, we take strategic board seats in companies that we invest in. You can always have reports provided or things done on a quarterly basis, on a monthly basis. Those are all clauses that you'd have in contracts. But really, in order to be able to have a relationship where the companies actually feel like you're part of the company and you're invested in the company, you need to believe in them and you need to build a trust relationship where they believe in you. And that has, I believe, so far worked in the exits that we've had because as Tobias said, some of these proposals, you know, came from the companies. Hey, there's a there's an opportunity for this secondary. Um, are you interested? My most recent uh, reflection has actually been that our investment strategy, which has as part being an early investor in nascent sectors, is actually contributing to exits. Um, and Daystar is a good example. So, and, and we've seen that actually even in the solar home system space or pay-as-you-go home solar home system space where the two exits we've had were similar. So when, when we invest in nascent sectors that also have strategic interests, you know, but be it by utilities or similar strategics, they typically wait a few years, but, but still want to be early as, an, as a sector evolves. And if you've been able to invest in some of the earliest players in those sectors, you know, you have a very good chance uh, if you make a good pick that, you know, some of the companies you invest in will be attractive acquisition targets for some of these strategics. And as I said, we've seen that in, in two of our exits in the solar system space where they were actually very early in the development of that sector. And again, similarly in the commercial and industrial solar space where you know, strategics, you know, kind of almost in a second wave, start looking at which companies are interesting acquisition uh, targets for them. And certainly we won't be able to exit our whole portfolio in such a manner, but that does provide quite the unique angle for early exits. Whereas, you know, the typical exit horizon also for many of our portfolio investments will be, you know, seven, seven years. This does offer the opportunity for much earlier exits you know, and, and also at, at good multiple. Okay. I have two questions left uh, before we round off this episode. And this one, I might cheat a bit because it's a, it's, it's a very loaded question and it's uh, more about relationships and the regions that uh, Persistent operates in. So obviously, especially going into next year with a new fund and all this excitement, I'm sure that you're going to have a much like bigger top of funnel. And as you start to eliminate different opportunities to invest with the different stages they are in and their um, readiness, which is something that is a completely different conversation that's too broad to get into right now. How are you looking at relationships, particularly with the other investors in this space? Because although the opportunities in quotes might be quite large, the reality is that a lot of the companies are not really quite there to be investable yet. So how do you look at managing relationships with other investors, especially with uh, policymakers as well, being thrown into that mix? And also with the entrepreneurs that are coming into the space, the ones who are actually doing the really hard work because it's a very difficult space to 
to get into and really grow to uh, a substantial um, scale. So just talk more about that broadly, about the relationships with other investors in the space, the policy component, and then the entrepreneurs that are really um, out there doing the work. All right. I can start on and say that it's definitely collaborative, right? When you look at investors at their pre-seed stage or inception stage, venture studios, again, not that many not able to deploy as much funding to the venture company, right? As persistent, we're at a space where we sort of bridge the gap between, you know, inception and super early stage with growth stage. And that means that we have to have really collaborative and almost symbiotic relationships with the companies, um, with the other investors in the market, because the, the pool, especially for equity, Investments is not that large. So there mm -hmm. are, um, from a super early stage um, aspect and from a growth stage aspect, a few investors that we even have pipeline calls, scheduled pipeline calls with, where we know that, you know, coming from maybe getting, you know, 100,000 in equity, we are the next stage of, you know, getting 500,000 in equity and more venture building. We do have pipeline calls where we share pipeline. The same with growth stage and even development finance institutions. So if you think of, you know, investors like, uh, like Equator Fund or like Kawasaki, they come in at sort of you know, series A or pre-series A. And again, having those pipeline conversations with them is really important because you don't want the company also to, you know, search for these investors themselves where you can help them. And the same with development finance institutions, right? We've got the likes of, you know, DFC who offer concessional funding and guarantees. So being able to leverage off of our networks is really important. So we do that very actively. And we also realize that as a venture builder, there's a certain reputational aspect that, you know, if persistent believes in that company, then we can probably believe in that company at a later stage, at the growth stage. So in our venture building and in our invest investment analysis, we always have that at the back of our minds that we do want to be able to offer comfort to other investors not just in handing them the company, but also as we talked about in the fund, maybe putting in follow-on investments at pre-series A or, or series A, because that also helps catalyze funding. And that's something that we've seen has worked very well, not just in catalyzing funding for current portfolio, but also in achieving exits because you're achieving exits also based on those relationships. And I think so far we've been able to catalyze for every dollar about that we invest, we've been able to catalyze about five, you know, dollars more. So five X of funding. A company like, you know, Altec in DRC, which is a, a solar home solutions company that's also offering immobility solutions, has been able to obtain, you know, over 30 million in funding because of in grant and debt funding, because of the venture building that we are offering and the relationships that we've been able to catalyze and they were regarded the fourth uh, fastest growing company in Africa, Altec, in 2023 by the Financial Times. So that is what access means to us as assistant, being yeah. able to catalyze funding and being able to catalyze the scale up and the impact of the companies that we invest in. 
Yeah, that is very exciting. And I'm looking forward to uh, way more of that uh, going into next year as well. And now for the last question. So I think the best way to do this is maybe we can start off with Tobias and then Wairimu, you can uh, end us off. This has the potential to be a bit of a dark question, but I feel like it's a very important one uh, given the space that we work with. So here it is. So how do you define failure in Africa's energy transition and uh, climate change journey, given the work that you're doing right now with investments and being very involved in the venture building side? How would you define uh, failure for your work? Well, it's also been a very personal question, right? Where everyone brings in their personal perspective. So for me, first and foremost, right, what we do is really about the entrepreneurs. So, um, you know, and we invest only in entrepreneurs that have a genuine and true climate impact, right? And have an impact on the speed and acceleration of, of you know, of, of, of climate mitigation, of the transition required. So for me, failure means when we as persistent, you know, or as individuals fail to support the entrepreneurs adequately, right? Then that can have multiple layers to it. And, you know, some of them we can have nothing to do with if they're related to macro shocks or, you know, other events that we can't steer COVID, you know, or, or any of these events. But in the end, you know, there's really the opposite of succeeding and right then succeeding would be to be able to help great entrepreneurs build, you know, long-term sustainable, you know, attractive climate ventures. And so failure to me is when, when we don't succeed at that and whatever the reason is, but when we don't succeed at helping these entrepreneurs grow to the next stage. Of course, the nice thing is, right, failing as an entrepreneur or as a company doesn't, doesn't mean failure in itself, right? You learn a lot from it. And we, we know from statistics, sometimes the best entrepreneurs are the ones that have, you know, failed once or twice or three times already, and then really take all of that and, and build a really successful venture. So that's maybe the, the positive note on, on the more negative aspect, right? The failure that, you know, yes, failure in itself is, is painful, is also you know, something that requires a lot of energy, but you can learn from it, both as an investor, as a venture builder, and as an entrepreneur. And it's probably more important the speed at which you fail and then the, the speed at which you apply those learnings. So that's, that's maybe the type of response I would give to this question. Thank you, Tobias. Wairimu? Yeah, it's, uh, my answer is also along the lines of Tobias, that failure is actually, yeah, in not, in not learning the lesson, right? Because some companies succeed and some companies, you know, will not succeed. That's, that's just a fact of life. But the lesson is in knowing, well, how do we help companies succeed and how do we recognize companies that don't succeed or, or that are not bound to succeed? And that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of failure, certainly thinking about it also being, you know, based in Nairobi and being in Africa is we keep talking about the fact that 600 million people don't have access to electricity or to clean energy. And to me, failure is having to say this in 2030 that number needs to fall drastically. Talking about energy poverty in Africa, talking about the fact that there are no effective public mobility system. It is going to be, I think, a failure of the whole ecosystem if we don't see a huge drop 
in those numbers. And that is what is persistent. We work towards in our venture building and also in leveraging the relationships that we have. Um, we talk about the fact that companies need to scale up. What do they need, need to scale up? We need to have zebras. We need to have unicorns in the climate sector in Africa, and we will. And so being able to say that we have made a significant difference in the climate sector in Africa, not just as individuals, but also as a sector, aggregating persistent other venture capital um, equity providers, debt providers, DFIs, if we can't work together to have universal electrification in the next 10 years, I would say we need to sit back and say, where are we going wrong? Because the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that is mm. why we try to do things differently as a system. Thank you to everyone who has made it to the end. And since you have made it this far, why not subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast so you get notified the next time we upload our episodes. And I hope you all have a wonderful week ahead. I want to give a shout out to our producer, Gose, for his help putting this episode together. And we'll see you on the next episode of The Energy Talk. Bye-bye now.